God is the God of the universe. He is the moral authority and the moral standard. And with the Holy Spirit in us, he gives us the power to chisel away all of the things that keep us from connecting with God. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Father God, thank you for another chance to gather here, uh, to dig into your word, to understand who you are and what your plan is. God, thank you for this facility and this final Bible study that we're having here before we move on to a different facility. Um, Thank you for what this place has meant to everyone who's attended Parkminster over over a century that it has existed. God, I ask that as this place closes, that blessings reign and uh, the lessons that have been taught and the relationships that have built continue and leave a lasting legacy outside of these walls. God, I, I pray that whatever we do tonight is a part of that legacy. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are... In 1 Kings, so we're dealing right now with Solomon's reign. Um, so starting in chapter 4, we've, we've already dealt with David handing over the kingdom to Solomon and quelling the small rebellion that existed with Solomon's brother. We've dealt with Solomon eradicating his enemies and establishing his kingdom. And now... His kingdom is firmly established, his throne is firmly established, and it's a time of peace, and we're going to deal with Solomon's reign and how he set up his administration uh, and building of the temple and fulfilling the promises he made to his father David uh, and the promises that God made to David. So let's pick it up, 1 Kings chapter 4. It says, So King Solomon was over all. Israel. So just kind of reiterating what we just talked about. Solomon is firmly established as the leader of Israel. It says, and there were his officials, Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest, Elihareth, and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, scribes, Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, the recorder, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army, Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, Azariah, the son of Nathan, over the officers, Zabad, the son of Nathan, a priest, and the king's friend, Ahishar, 
over the household of Adinaram, and the son of Abda over the labor force. And Solomon had twelve governors over Israel who provided food for the king and his household. One made provision for one month of the year, and these are their names. And so what's happening is we're getting a glimpse into how he has established order in the kingdom. He is aware of who is over the priesthood, who is who are the scribes, who are his close counselors. And now we have this understanding that he has divided the land of Israel into 12 sections. And he's placed a governor over each of the sections. And for one month of the year, that section is responsible for bringing food into the capital and dispersing it among those in need. Okay. And so that's how he's, he's really organized. But it's also interesting that the son of David, Solomon, sets up his reign with 12 followers that establish his rule. Isn't that interesting? Because the ultimate son of David is Jesus, who had his 12 disciples. So the list of names goes all the way to chapter 20. And I'm not going to read through all of that, but I suggest you do. Not because I think you're going to get any crazy life application out of it, but because it gives us an insight into who God is. So this is God's story, the Bible, particularly Old Testament, is leading us down the lineage to which ultimately Jesus will come from and setting all of that in place. Then you have all of these names here that aren't a part of that, and it could make you go, why is that recorded? Why is that important? Why did the Holy Spirit want that in there? And I think it gives us an insight into God's personality, which is people matter to him. These names are written down because they were a part of the story that were leading to Jesus. And these people played a vital role in the establishment of Solomon's kingdom. And therefore, God honored them by putting them in the book because God cares about people. Even though this story is about him, and this is about his glory, he still loves them enough to include them in the story. This eternal story. But let's pop down to verse 20 as we finish up chapter 4. It says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in the multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So what does this mean? The kingdom of Israel was really prosperous and peaceful at this time. So they were eating and drinking and being merry, and they were happy because Solomon was leading them down the road to prosperity. But if you notice, in the beginning of this verse, it already has them separated, Judah and Israel. Now Solomon reigned over all of Israel as a unified kingdom. But that doesn't last very long. As soon as Solomon, Solomon's reign ends, then the next line of kings, his son Rehoboam, has a rebellion by one of his advisors, Jeroboam, and the kingdom splits in the north and south, which are called Israel and Judah. And so there's already a tension in the people, notating that the north and south have some differences. They happen to come under unification under David and Solomon, but you can tell there's already sort of conflict there, and it's recorded because First Kings isn't only about Solomon. It goes through a whole list of kings, and after Solomon, it includes kings from the north and the south. 
So Solomon is the unique one in this story because Solomon is the only one in the book of Kings that reigns over a unified Israel. Verse 21, so Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon the days of his life. Now Solomon's provision for one day. Now, as we read this, I want you to think about this because remember he split the territory up into 12 sections and set one territory a month over taking care of the provisions. So this gives you an insight into the work that they were had to do one month of the year. It says, now Solomon's provision was for one day uh, 30 cores of fine flour. I think that's something like 600 liters, if I'm correct, maybe 60. But it's an enormous number for one day. Um, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures or cattle, 20 cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. So that's all to just cover one day of provision. And so a whole month of that is, re is required from each of the 12 areas for one month a year, uh, out of the year. So for he had dominion over all the region, this side of the river from Tishba even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on every side all around him. Now here's the thing. Solomon reigned over a peaceful time, but that peace was set up by David. Solomon just expanded it, and he didn't go to war. He created peace and peace treaties and expanded the borders of Israel. But he's very lucky to have walked in after a time of conquering by David to not have to continue the conquer or the bloodshed, but to extend peace to the borders of Israel. It says, In Judah and Israel dwelt safely each man under his vine and under his fig tree from Dan as far as Beersheba all the days of Solomon. And said, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses. Now, just a quick note, Chronicles has that listed as 4,000, and that's probably the accurate number. Um, this is likely a scribal error in the Old Testament in the Book of Kings, but it's still a ridiculous amount of, of horses. It said, Solomon has likely 4,000 stalls of horses and his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And these governors, each man in his month, provided food for the kingdom and for all who king, came to King Solomon's table. There was no lack in their supply. They also bought barley, straw, and straw to the proper place for the horses and steeds, each man according to his charge. <clears throat> now, interestingly, if you remember way back in Deuteronomy, there was uh, Moses gave rules for the kings that would eventually come to Israel. And he said not to indulge in horses, gold, and women. Solomon was extremely rich with gold. You already see here how many horses he had. And uh, Solomon had up to a thousand women in his harem. So he didn't really live up to the laws that Moses had set in place for the future kings. But just to give you an idea of where things went wrong for him, you can see he indulged in all the things Moses said not to. 
But the horses in particular were a sign of political and military power. So it's almost like the king of Israel turning his back on God's power and presenting his own personal power with his personal army, which is where the horses were an issue with God. Because God had saved them from Egypt when they had no military. God is capable of doing whatever he needs to do, regardless of what you bring to the table. Verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart, like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all men of the east uh, and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan, uh, though uh, the Ezrahite, and uh, Heman, Shalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. So God granted Solomon wisdom. We kind of talked about that already before in some of the wisdom that God gave Solomon. He's known as the wisest man who ever lived. But if Solomon was so wise, why did he make all these mistakes? Or even better, the question would be, why did God continue to give Solomon wisdom when he was living in opposition to God? And I think, you know, in the New Testament, we understand that the gifts are not prohibited. The gifts of the Spirit are not prohibited by our lifestyle. If, you, if God is using you, God will use you, even if you're in opposition to him. God used Pharaoh when he was in opposition to him. If it wasn't for Pharaoh's hardness of heart and desire to prove himself to be a better God than God himself, then God's power would not have been unleashed for the Israelites to see. Like Whether or not you are living for or against God is not going to prohibit God's use of you in his story. And Solomon still had a role to play in God's story, whether or not he was doing what was right. And unfortunately for Solomon, he finds out much later in his life that his use of wisdom he used for his own benefit and gain, and it did him a lot of worldly good. It gained him extra treasure, it gained him extra wives, it gained him extra land, extra money, extra pleasures in life. But then if you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, again, he finds out that all of that was worthless and meaningless, and ultimately nothing new is under the sun, and what was really worthwhile about his life were the things that were eternal the things that last beyond this world, and that is living for God. And so Solomon is a perfect vessel to explain what really matters in life because Solomon had nothing withholding his experience of pleasure and he used his wisdom for his own personal gain to experience all the things this world has to offer. And his conclusion was living for God is the reason to exist. Verse 32, he spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. This is speaking of Solomon. And he spoke of the trees from the cedar tree to Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. The men of all nations from all kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now Solomon was a man who was respected. And that sets up 
the next thing for Solomon, which is building the temple, doing what he promised David he would do in fulfilling the promise that God gave to David. Chapter 5, now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon because he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram had always loved David. And then Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord? Because of the wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. But Solomon is acknowledging that the peace he has, he has experienced in his reign came from the wars that David fought. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. Also, really wise for Solomon to understand that David fought the wars that granted the land that he had and caused the peace in Israel, but even more so that the peace was given to God or from God, not through Solomon's great reign. So it's a good acknowledgement from him. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord God spoke to my father David, saying, Your son whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. Now therefore, command that they cut down cedars from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say. For you know that there is none among us who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. So, the people of Sidon and Tyre are going to bring the cedar wood to Israel. And this is like prime cut wood. This is, this is the thing that's going to show the power and authority in Israel and the power and authority of God. This is the most expensive, the best cuts that you can get. Um, this is USDA prime Right, this is what you want. Um, so we're already getting a glimpse of the splendor that is put into this temple and what it represents. So verse 7, So it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. Then Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have considered the message which you sent me, and I will do all that you desire uh, concerning the cedar and cypress logs. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea. I will float them in rafts by sea to the place you indicate to me and will have them broken apart there. Then you can take them away and you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. So we came to an agreement. This is the, this is the deal. This is the contract. They're going to provide the wood. Israel is going to provide food. Deal done. Then Hiram gave Solomon cedar and cypress logs according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of pressed oil for Solomon gave to Hiram year by year. So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom and he had promised, uh, gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon and the two of them made a treaty together. Then King Solomon raised up a labor force out of all Israel, and the labor force was 30,000 men. So he basically he drafted them, but instead of for the military, it's for building the temple to God. Now, this is an interesting thing to me because it's something that we've lost in America because we are no longer a Christian nation. We're a post-Christian nation at this point. And, but in Israel the life of the community was built around the temple. People had jobs 
regarding the temple, whether that was shepherds to, you know, help take care of the sheep that were going to be used for the sacrifices. Um, you know, there were laborers uh, that all had jobs regarding to the worship life. And it, the the biggest part of the economy in ancient Israel had everything to do with the worship center of life in Jerusalem and things that would go there, including tourism, because four times a year, all of the men around Israel would have to go travel to Jerusalem for specific feasts. So everything was related to the worship life, and that was the lifeblood of their economy. Everything was centered around their worship life at Jerusalem. It's interesting to me that that's the case and that that's how God had set up Israel. Um, even to this point, Solomon building the temple had drafted people in to do the job of the building of the temple. Um, and so it wasn't serfdom to build the king's palace or to provide vegetables and, and food for the king. It was to provide for the worship of God, which I think is an extremely interesting thing, that this was not service to man, but service to God. It'd be really interesting to see what life would be like if we could set ourselves up like that, if our lives were centered around the worship of God, and that was the center of everything we did like it was in ancient Israel. Just a thought as I'm reading this. I'm just sharing that. But uh, so King, he, he set up this labor force of 30,000 men that he drafted into, into work, and he sent them uh, to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They were one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adinaram was in charge of the labor force. So what he had done is he took the 30,000 men and he split them up into three groups of 10,000. And this is really interesting. And I think a great example of Solomon's wisdom. These guys are going to be working really hard to do something really big as fast as they can for the God that they worship. And so he makes them work one month at a time and, and they work in, in rotation. So one group takes the first month, the next group takes the second month, and then the next group picks the third month, and then the first group goes back to the fourth month, right? And it works like that. So they only work one month at a time and then have two months off from this hard labor that they're doing, almost making the draft worthwhile because they're doing something to serve God, but they're not missing out on their time at home with their families. So just really interesting piece of, of Solomon's wisdom. Now, Solomon had 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who quarried stone in the mountains besides 3,300 from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies who supervised the people who labored in the week. And the king commanded them to quarry the large, costly stones and hewn stones to lay the foundations of the temple. So Solomon's builders, Hiram's builders, and the, the Gebahites quarried them, and they prepared timber and stones to build the temple. All right, chapter 6. The work is getting done now. The workforce has been built. Now the work's getting done. Chapter 6, it came to pass that 400 and uh, in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord, <clears throat> now the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, or 90 feet. Remember, a cubit is eight, about 18 inches, so about a foot and a half. So if you just take whatever it says, add half of it, half to it, then that is about how many feet it was. 
So 60 cubits is about 90 feet. It's width 20 or 30 feet, and it's height 30 cubits or 45 feet. So you've got 90 by 30 by 45 feet high. So it's not a football stadium. Like, it's not gigantic. But its size was not what you need to pay attention to. You need to pay attention to is how beautiful it was. Nothing like this had ever existed. Um, and you'll see that as we finish this up. So the vestibule in front of the sanctuary was 20 cubits long across the width of the house, and the width of the vestibule extended 10 cubits from the front of the house. And he made for the house windows with beveled frames against the wall of the temple. He built chambers all around against the walls of the temple, all around the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary. Uh, thus he made side chambers all around it. The lowest chamber was five cubits, with the middle was six cubits, and the third was seven cubits wide. He made narrow ledges around the outside of the temple so that support beams would not be fastened into the walls of the temple. And the temple, when it was being built, was built with stone, Finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool heard in the temple was heard in the temple while it was being built. Now, this is really interesting. Um, just to give you kind of an idea, or sum up what you've just heard, because it's a lot of numbers, and you might not have the picture in your head. Imagine just a, a long rectangle, about 45 feet high, of stone. That's all you're looking at. All right, but then all around it are all of these storage chambers. Now that's something different than the tabernacle. So it's set up the same way as the tabernacle was set up, except it has all these storage chambers all around the outside. And instead of being a tent of linen, it's made of stone. That's really the only difference. But here's the interesting thing, and we don't really know why. But the stones that were quarried to build the build the temple were cut to precision before they were moved they were cut down to size and shaped at the quarry and so they had to fit perfectly so they were cut to fit to perfection at the quarry and then moved to the temple after they had been shaped and cut so when they brought it to the temple mount they just slid the stone in they didn't have to do any extra work now we don't know why solomon chose to do that but it is something I want you to note because we're going to talk about that later. But the stones were cut and shaped in the quarry to perfection before they were moved to the temple. Interestingly, just so you know, recently that quarry was found. So they know exactly where the, the stones were cut for the temple. And it's likely that that's the place where they're going to quarry the stones for the third temple. If, well, I shouldn't say if, I wholly believe when it gets built, um, because that's what the Bible tells us, and I believe the Bible's right. So, verse 8, the doorway for the middle story was on the right side of the temple. They went up by the stairs to the middle story from the middle to the third. So he built the temple and finished it, and he paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar. So now... There's this stone that's been cut to perfection, then put, brought to the Temple Mount and slid into place. Then, all throughout the inside, there's cedar boards. So this, the most expensive wood in the world is 
housing and beaming and supporting this structure. And he built side chambers against the entire temple, each five cubits high. They were attached to the temple with cedar beams. Then the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David. So now, in the middle of this project, Solomon is reminded by God, if you do the most important thing, which is follow me, you're going to be at the, at the receiving end of the blessings God has promised. That's all you have to do, Solomon, is follow me. Uh, we kind of know how that ends, but either way, it leads to Jesus. Verse 13, And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the temple and finished it. And he built the inside walls of the temple with cedar boards from the floor to the temple to the ceiling. He paneled the inside with wood and he covered the floor of the temple with planks of cypress. Then he built the 20 cubit room at the rear of the temple from floor to ceiling with cedar boards. He built it inside as the inner sanctuary as the most holy place. And in front of it, the temple sanctuary was 40 cubits long. The inside of the temple was cedar carved with ornamental buds and open flowers, all was cedar. There was no stone to be seen. So now on the inside, you have framed out in cedar and cypress the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. And then in the Holy Place, you even have little carved ornamental budding flowers and interesting things like that. Just that alone would have been unbelievable to see. This is the most expensive wood. It w- I couldn't imagine how good it smelt in there, being all cedar. But that's not the end of what Solomon did. It's even better than just the most expensive wood and the most unbelievable framing. So he prepared the inner sanctuary inside the temple to set the ark, the covenant of the Lord, there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. That's the Holy of Holies, and it's a square box. Just a one-cubed room. He overlaid it with pure gold and the altar of cedar. So in the Holy of Holies, when you walked in, all you saw was complete reflective gold everywhere. So Solomon had so much gold, he didn't keep it all for himself. He gave it to God. And he, the entire room, when you walked in, you wouldn't see any wood, you wouldn't see any stone. All you would see is gold everywhere. And so Solomon overlaid the the inside of the temple with pure gold. He stretched gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. The whole temple he overlaid with gold until he finished all the temple. Also, he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was in the inner sanctuary. Inside the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. One wing of the cherub was five cubits, and the other wing of the cherub was five cubits, ten cubits, or fifteen feet. Uh, from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. Now, if you want to know what the cherubs are, Ezekiel 1 or uh, Revelation 4. These are really interesting creatures with like four faces and a bunch of wings. Uh, they're also carved on top of the, the Ark of the Covenant, on top of the mercy seat, and their wings touch each other. These are really interesting creatures, but they're huge, and everything is gold. When you walk inside the temple, you only see gold. Can you imagine? I can't even imagine that sight. Just gold everywhere. And the other cherub was ten cubits. Both cherubim 
were of the same size and shape. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, so was the other. Then he set the cherubim inside the inner room, and they stretched out the wings of the cherubim so that the wings of one touched one wall and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. And their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. And he overlaid both the cherubim with gold. So now you have these two images of angels in the holy place. Their wings are stretched all the way across the room, and in the middle their, their other wings meet. These huge structures, and everything is gold. I cannot... No, nothing like this had ever been built. Inside the inner sanctuary, he made two... Oh, I'm sorry, I already read that. Then he carved... This is verse 29. Then he carved all the walls of the temple all around him, both the inner and the outer sanctuaries. He carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. And the floor of the temple he overlaid with gold, both the inner and outer sanctuaries. So all the walls, all the floors, gold. The only place you saw wood is if you looked up. All right? Not only was it flat gold, but there were carved images of flowers and trees and all kinds of interesting things, all covered in gold. This is an amazing structure. And this is for the entrance to the inner sanctuary. He made the doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were one-fifth of the wall. And the two doors of the olive wood, and he carved on them figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and overlaid them with gold. And he spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So for the door of the sanctuary, he made doorposts of olive wood, one-fourth of the wall. And the two doors were of cypress wood, two panels comprised one folding door, and two panels comprised the other of the folding door. Then he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers on them, and he overlaid them with gold, applied evenly on the carved work. And he built the inner court with three rows of hewn stone, a row of cedar beams. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv, and, on the, and in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its details according to all its plans, so he, he was seven years in building it. And interestingly, he spent seven years building it, and seven is the number of completion biblically, and just like God rested on the seventh day because his creation was complete. There's seven colors in the rainbow, seven notes in a musical scale. Seven is the biblical number of completion. He spent seven years building it. This structure is unbelievable. It's made with the most expensive wood. Its stones were carved to perfection before they were even placed. And then everything and all the carvings inside of it were covered with gold. And they spent seven years making sure it was perfect. And he drafted people out of the, out of the country to go and work and make this happen. Because everything in their life was centered around the worship center and where God would dwell. And so this is sort of what I get from this is this was so important because God was at the center of everything about Israel. This is what God wanted when he set Israel apart from the world. For Israel to be a shining light to the world, that God is the one true God and Israel is different. And through their worship, people should see the glory of him. And Solomon was so concerned about the glory of God that he put all of this investment, all of this money, and all of this gold that he could have kept for himself, and he put it to the construction of God's place, where God would dwell 
with his people. The tabernacle was built so that God could dwell with his people as they were wandering through the wilderness. Now they have their permanent home in Israel. And they're unified and they're at peace. And Solomon builds the permanent home for God to dwell in his people and the permanent worship place for the people of God. And they put this kind of investment in it because they wanted the place where God was worshipped to be above anything that existed on this earth. That's because it was God was so important to them. Their entire economy was built around the temple. Now, I mentioned before that we were going to talk about the stones because I think there's a lesson that we could also get from this. While we don't know why Solomon had this done, I think it's very interesting that what the temple represented was God dwelling with his people. The temple was the place where God was worshipped, where the worship was done. Interestingly, the stones and all of their imperfections were taken care of and cut away, and they were sanded and shaped and cut until they were ready to go to the place where God dwelt. But not only were they going to the place where God dwelt, they were going to be a part of it. Interestingly, in the New Testament, we're told that we're the temples of the Holy Spirit, that God dwells within us, and that we are sanctified and justified by the blood of Christ. Because because of what Christ did for us, we can be forgiven and get ready to be prepared to be in God's presence for eternity. So justification is our salvation. It's the forgiveness of the blood when we accept Christ and his sacrifice for us. Sanctification is the process through which we are carved into the image God meant for us to be. It's where the sin in our lives gets chiseled away and we get shaped and sanded into the image of Jesus. And we become more and more like him through our relationship, through the Holy Spirit guiding us. And we cannot be in God's presence in heaven in eternity until we experience the last part of salvation, which is in theological terms called glorification, where we receive the bodies that no longer have the sin, sinful flesh. And we get to experience being fully physically in front of God without weak flesh. And so I think of it this way. Interestingly, we are also called the bride of Christ and the body of Christ as the church. And so, as justified believers, we then go into a process of sanctification. And like those stones in the quarry, when we come face to face with God and his word, and the prompting of the Holy Spirit and conviction, we start to chisel away the things that don't match up with what God says. And then, At the end of this temporary physical life, we receive glorification and new bodies that allow us to not have this weak flesh so that we can stand in the presence of God and we can just slide in perfectly to be the body of Christ, to be the the bride of Christ, to not only 
be ready to be worshiping with God, but to slide right in. No, no more has to be chipped away or taken away. That is, it is the gospel, it is the Christian story, interestingly, in that one strange verse. And this is something I particularly like about conservative theology as opposed to liberal theology. Because in, in liberal theology, what tends to happen is we like to, they like to twist or change or add to Scripture to meet whatever the new cultural version of good is. And we like to change so that whatever we think is the moral good according to our culture, we change God and morph him to fit that so that we don't feel bad about the cultural pressures that are on us for how we should feel. Where conservative theology takes more this approach, God is the God of the universe. He is the moral authority and the moral standard. And with the Holy Spirit in us, he gives us the power to chisel away all of the things that keep us from connecting with God. And to help us become more perfectly fit into his plan, into who he says we should be, so that at the right time, we can slide right into the body of Christ for eternity. And I think that's a beautiful picture. And the building of the temple is just one idea of it that I think makes a lot of sense. That's all I have for tonight. Remember chapters 7 and 8 when we meet again on December 6th. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this evening. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for this final Bible study here at Parkminster Church as we move to a different location with a different name. God, I thank you for the time that has been put into this, the the, the opportunity to build something here, uh, but more importantly, the chance to worship you and to learn about you. Thank you for this word that you've given us for this guide to your story, to help us know you, your plan, and your purpose. Help it to guide us and chisel away the parts of us that don't fit. And help us to be in your story. Like the list of names, that doesn't give us any lessons, but it shows us how much you care about the people that are a part of your story. Help us to be a part of that story and to make a difference now for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.